Tonight on Throwback Thursday, as we help Tune FM celebrate 50 years in 1983. Two people killed, several towns evacuated, houses destroyed and a number of firemen injured as bushfires again sweep through Victoria and South Australia. It's an all-Australian episode of Throwback Thursday as we discuss the Ash Wednesday bushfires, Australia's winning of the America's Cup, and the incredible controversy surrounding the 1983 federal election. It's going to be Australia too. They are going to win it. Stand up, Australia. Stand up, Australia. And give these boys a cheer. We are looking for the smoke at any moment. They're about to do it. They're about to cross the line. They make a final move. All that and more on this episode of Throwback Thursday, 1983. It is indeed Throwback Thursday, 1983. It's Jake here, your host yet again. Unfortunately, once again, we could not be joined by anyone this evening. We did hope to have someone in to talk to us about the Ash Wednesday bushfires, which will be one of our topics this evening. Uh, all of your lecturers are very busy people at the moment, so please do thank them for all of their hard work. And we certainly thank uh, everybody who has considered being part of the show and unfortunately could not do so due to other commitments. But as mentioned in the introduction, this is an all-Australian episode of Throwback Thursday. We have three big events that took place, uh, not necessarily in Australia, but big Australian events in 1983. First up, we're going to be talking about the Ash Wednesday bushfires in southeastern Australia on the 16th of February 1983, um, one of the big bushfire events to have taken place in the last 50 years. We're going to be talking about the 1983 America's Cup, the first winning challenge to the New York Yacht Club from the United States in 132 years. And wouldn't you just know, it was Australians who pulled it off. And we're going to be talking about the 1983 Australian federal election. Now, normally I am going to be avoiding uh, elections and the sort because they, they happen every few years and most of the time they tend to be rather uninteresting. But 1983 was a very interesting election indeed. So we're going to be talking about what happened, uh, who won, who became our prime minister, and uh, exactly why it was quite so controversial. But we're going to be talking first about the Ash Wednesday bushfires, which was our originally planned topic. 16th of February, 1983, within 12 hours, more than 180 fires that were fanned by winds of up to 110 kilometers an hour caused widespread destruction right across Victoria and South Australia. It had been really aggravated by years of severe drought and some extreme weather, uh, and it created one of Australia's worst fire days in a century at the time. It would become Australia's deadliest bushfire in history until the Black Saturday bushfires in 2009. In Victoria, there were 47 deaths and 28 in South Australia, including 14 CFA and three CFS volunteer firefighters who died on that day across both states. But we'll go back and have a look at the backgrounds. Um, in South Australia, in the areas of South Australia that were affected by these bushfires, there had been... Um, 
if you go to South Australia, they refer to these bushfires as Ash Wednesday 2. The reason for that is that Ash Wednesday was already a name given to some bushfires in 1980. They had a virtually rainless summer in 1980 in South Australia after having a very wet spring in 1979. Um, so as you might know, if you're into ecology, if you have a wet spring, uh, things grow and then you have a virtually rainless summer. And of course, all of that then dies. And when grass or trees or, or small shrubs or anything like that die, they just become dry and uh, even more flammable than they were before. Uh, during the 1980 bushfires, which uh, which then took place, 51 houses were destroyed and they were those fires were referred to as Ash Wednesday, uh, particularly in South Australia, until the 1983 ones, which would become notorious nationwide, not just in that state. Uh, so after those bushfires in 1982, at the end of 1982, large areas of eastern Australia uh, went into prolonged drought because of the El Nino climatic cycle, basically because of the way that um, ocean currents and winds were being distributed over the Pacific Ocean. Uh, we were in a period of very severe drought in late 1982. Rainfall over that winter and spring had been as little as half the previous record low dating back to the 1870s. So the earliest total fire ban in 40 years was proclaimed in Victoria on the 24th of November 1982. So that's late November, by then a total fire ban right across Victoria. In the early fire season, there were already some fires. The, uh, the firefighting agencies had employed extra staff and organized for extra equipment. They were quite prepared. And the first big one happened in November of 1982 and was followed by three large fires in early December. Even before the 16th of February, fires were already causing destruction around Victoria. But a really ominous sign of things to come came on the afternoon of the 8th of February when Melbourne was completely enveloped by a giant dust storm. The dust cloud was over 300 metres high and 500 kilometres long uh, with an estimated 50,000 tonnes of topsoil from the drought-ravaged areas of Victoria being deposited on the city of Melbourne. But around came the 16th of February. It was a very, very hot, dry day, and the weather was very complex in the morning. It was very hard, particularly with the technology that they had in the early 80s, to predict how the day was going to develop. There was a front of hot, dry air coming in uh, from the interior to the north, uh, but cooler air was moving eastwards from the Southern Ocean. So it was very complex. There was a lot of, there was high winds. It was very dry. It was very hot. Um, now, basically, these fires took off right across the southeastern area of Australia from as far west as the mid-north Clare Valley in uh, South Australia, which is just to the north of Adelaide. There were fires directly to the east of Adelaide and all the way across to the east as far as Warburton, which uh, people will know is just east of Melbourne. So right across the southern regions of South Australia and Victoria fires took off. Uh, many of the fires in Victoria were thought to have been caused by sparks between short-circuiting power lines and tree branches touching power lines, which is why since we now get uh, very regular tree trimming for trees that are anywhere near power lines um, because of a systematic review of fire safety that was undertaken after these dreadful, dreadful fires. But a total of 500 and 
14,000 acres in South Australia and two and a half million acres in Victoria burned in one day. A total of 1.2 million acres would burn throughout the 1982-83 season combined for the rest of the season. So this one day was bigger than the rest of the 1982-83 bushfire season combined. There were lots of different causes for the fires, as is usual when you get a big fire outbreak like this. Like I said, faulty power lines were considered to be among them, but there were also suspected arson and um, also some cases of negligence. Um, In the end, absolute devastation. 3,700 homes and buildings would be lost. Uh, including urban and rural fringe areas, farmland, and forest reserve. 75 people would be killed, 47 in Victoria and 28 in South Australia, and 2,676 people would be injured uh, in what is one of the worst days for bushfires in Australian history. It was one of Australia's costliest natural disasters as well, with all of those buildings, nearly 4,000 buildings being destroyed and 2,500 individuals and families losing their homes, as well as, of course, high losses of livestock. It is estimated more than 340,000 sheep, 18,000 cattle, and goodness knows how many native animals were either dead or later had to be uh, euthanized due to basically unrecoverable injuries. A total of four and a half thousand insurance claims were paid out, totaling $176 million at the time. Uh, The total estimated cost of damages was over $400 million. Now, keep in mind that that's $1983. So adjusting for inflation, I, I haven't got the numbers right in front of me, but that is reaching towards the billion mark. Um, yeah, that actually, I do have the numbers here. I've just scrolled down. $1.3 billion in damages. Uh, it also saw the largest number of volunteers called to duty from across Australia at the same time. 130,000 firefighters, defense force personnel, relief workers, and support crews from right around Australia all employed at the same time on that day. Uh, so a rather tragic and uh, truly horrifying day, the 16th of February, 1983, known to us now as Ash Wednesday, uh, one of the worst individual days of bushfires in Australia's history taking place back in 1983. When we come back, we're going to be talking about a much more positive story in Australian history, uh, much, much more positive. Uh, We're going to be talking about the 1983 America's Cup, And we, of course, are going to be talking about the 1983 federal election a little bit later in the show. Don't go anywhere. We've got a song break coming up for you next. You're listening to Throwback Thursday on 106.9 Tune FM. Elsewhere in 1983, the video game Mario Brothers was first released as a Nintendo arcade game in Japan during July. The game was designed by Shigeru Miyamoto, who also designed The Legend of Zelda and Donkey Kong, and Gunpei Yokoi, who also created Metroid and the Game Boy. It was a platform-style game with phases. It featured the now-iconic characters of Mario and his brother Luigi, two plumbers who battled sewer creatures in New York. The game was not initially successful, as at the time of its release, the video game industry was going through a crash, but it became successful after a series of games, after the release of Super Mario Bros. in 1985 for the Nintendo Entertainment System gaming console. You're listening to 106.9 Tune FM. 
This is Allentown by Billy Joel. You are listening to Throwback Thursday 1983. We're going to move on from the Ash Wednesday bushfires now. And we're going to be talking about the 25th America's Cup in 1983. 
It was the occasion of the first ever winning challenge to the New York Yacht Club, which had successfully defended the America's Cup over a period of 132 years. 132 years. An Australian syndicate from the Royal Perth Yacht Club fielded the Australia 2, skippered by John Bertrand, against the defender the Liberty from the New York Yacht Club, skippered by Dennis Connor. Australia 2 would win the match races after fighting back from a 3-1 deficit to win the America's Cup, ending the longest winning streak in sporting history and the US domination of the racing series. To give you a bit of background, basically the America's Cup is, of course, a uh, a sailing uh, racing cup. Uh, essentially, uh, the way it works, it is held over seven races, uh, all of different deltas and different distances, and uh, the ultimate winner uh, wins the America's Cup. The defender at the time was the Liberty from the New York Yacht Club. It was skippered by team principal Dennis Connor. It had won all of its defender trials. And on the 2nd of September 1983, they confirmed that it, it of course, should be the favourite to represent the NYYC as the defender of the America's Cup. In the summer preceding the trials, uh, Connor had been the focus of extensive media attention in the US. He was uh, incredibly famous, which is really rare for a sailor. He was featured on the cover of Sports Illustrated magazine, which is rare recognition for any sailor whatsoever. The crew included Connor as the skipper with Tom Whidden, navigator Halsey Chase Hereshoff, Scott Vogel, and the main sheet trimmer John Marshall. They'd competed with uh, the, the yacht's Courageous and Defender in a Defender series before being eventually selected by the New York Yacht Club. So there was a lot of hope from American uh sailing fans and of course all of the american public that of course they were they expected to win they hadn't lost in 132 years the longest winning streak in any sport ever um, of course they, they couldn't lose but the challenger was australia too uh alan bond uh was the uh was the skipper there uh, sorry, the owner there. And it was billed as one of the biggest threats to American dominance of the 12-meter class. But as you'd expect, the biggest threat being, you know, if anyone's going to pull it off, it'll be them, but they won't. The boat was designed by Ben Lexkin and skippered by John Bertrand. It was, uh, it had what was called a winged keel. Uh, now, this was revolutionary at the time. It wasn't um, basically, it, it had, it was, it had only just recently been invented it's a different kind of layout of sailboat for those who don't know just basically the shape of 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 the way it, it uh, the boat is shaped and it was a bit of a controversy from the outset uh, the New York yacht club alleged that the winged keel boat was not actually legally a 12 meter boat uh, and that the keel design itself was the result of Dutch engineers and not by Lexicon themselves it would have made Australia 2 illegal under the requirement that the boat be designed and constructed in the country, uh, as well as, and that's that's what's called the deed of gift. Um, but uh, it was ruled a legal 12 metre, and she was allowed to participate in the regatta. Uh, so there were protests about it from the Americans, but they still expected to win. So along came the 1983 America's Cup with rather hopeful underdogs, the Australians and the defenders, the United States, looking to continue their 132-year streak. The U.S. yacht would win the first and second races by margins 
of more than a minute when the Australian yacht suffered equipment failure. So it was 2-0 already. But Australia 2 did take the third race. Uh, it was 2-1 after three races before the US pulled one back and were winning 3-1 uh, with a margin of 43 seconds in that race. But there was a little bit of hope. The Americans only needed to win one more race. But the Australians had won the third race by a margin, an incredible margin, of three minutes and 14 seconds. They knew they could do it. They just needed to do it. So the, the fifth race came around on the 21st of September, 1983, and Australia took it out pulling it back to 3-2 by a margin of a minute and 47 seconds. September 22nd was the penultimate race, and Australia took it out again to level it up and send it to a decider. 3-3 with an incredible margin of 3 minutes and 25 seconds. So the cup title came down to the seventh and final race on the 26th of September, 1983. There was a light wind. Not very much at all, and it was not a typical match race start because neither of them wanted to make a mistake and end up uh, losing the race because of that. Liberty, the American yacht, won the start by eight seconds ahead of Australia 2 on paper, but the Australians managed to gain a controlling position at the favoured end, sailing towards the favoured side, which gave them an early lead. Um, it was eventually overtaken by Connor, who would build up what seemed to be an unassailable margin. The Americans had it. But at the start of the penultimate leg, the America's Cup was looking like it would stay with the Americans. But Connor failed to cover Australia too, which allowed them to run deeper and faster with breeze and wind shifts, allowing them to overtake the Americans. And with a spectacular duel in the final uh, le legs of the race, Australia too held on until both boats reached the line, Australia 2 winning with a margin of 41 seconds, becoming the first successful challenger in 132 years since America's beat England's Isle of Wight in 1851. Absolutely incredible. The final race was a, a massive um a massive thing in Australia as well. It was televised in the early hours of the 27th of September, our time, just before dawn. And the victory was celebrated right across Australia. Prime Minister Bob Hawke was interviewed at the dawn celebration in Western Australia, where he said the famous words uh, that he would declare the next day a public holiday. And he said with finality, any boss who sacks a worker for not turning up today is a bum. Bob Hawke being an icon there. But that is an incredible story in Australian sporting history. Defeating the United States in the 25th America's Cup to end a 132-year streak and become the first successful challengers for the trophy. What a story. 1983, what a year it was for Australian sport. You're listening to 106.9 Tune FM. We'll be right back soon to talk about the 83 federal election, which is rather interesting, a lot more interesting than most federal elections will ever be. Uh, and that will be right after this song break. See you soon. Elsewhere in 1983, NASA's STS-7 mission was completed successfully during June. The mission carried five astronauts aboard the Space Shuttle Challenger on a six-day flight. The crew carried out several experiments and deployed two satellites. 
This mission was notable in that it was Sally Ride's first spaceflight, making her the first American woman in space. Although, 20 years earlier, the Soviet Union had already sent the first woman to space with Valentina Tereshkova aboard Vostok 6 in 1963. You're listening to 106.9 Tune FM. This is Overkill by Men at Work. Shows the fear Ghosts 
Overkill by Men at Work. You're listening to Throwback Thursday on 106.9 Tune FM, where we're going to get political now. We're going to talk about the 1983 Australian federal election. I can promise you I'm not going to be talking about every federal election in the 50-year history of Tune because most of them are rather uninteresting in hindsight. But this one in particular was very interesting. It was between, of course, Malcolm Fraser, the leader of the Liberal National Coalition at the time, and Bob Hawke of the Labor Party. Now, very interestingly, Bob Hawke had only taken the leadership of the Labor Party on the 3rd of February 1983, uh, and, and the election took place on the 5th of March. Hawke would have uh, future Prime Minister Paul Keating as his, um, essentially his deputy. Uh, Malcolm Fraser had also fought off a leadership challenge. He'd been Prime Minister, of course, since uh, something else we talked about on Throwback Thursday, which was the uh, 1975 constitutional crisis where he would take the Prime Ministership from Gough Whitlam. Um, But Bob Hawke uh, was coming up against him in this election. Fraser had just fought off a leadership challenge from Andrew Peacock. um, And he... Peacock was an interesting character. Uh, After Peacock lost that leadership challenge, he resigned from the cabinet and he said that Fraser had manic determination to get his own way. So there's a very interesting kind of uh, battle between within the Liberal and National Coalition at the time. Um, There's so the Liberals were in a bit of a, a crisis. At the same time, Bob Hawke had entered Parliament at the 1980 federal election and Labor factions began to push to get rid of their former leader, Bill Hayden, in favor of Hawke. Um, And Fraser thought that this gave him a big advantage because he was well aware that there were there were there were there were ructions in Labor. There were people that disagreed that didn't think Hawke should be the leader and Hayden had just been deposed. So Fraser saw his opportunity. Fraser knew that he didn't exactly have the most stable leadership himself. So he saw the opportunity. He needed to call an election. So he called a double dissolution election. For those of you who are not uh, really interested in politics or not quite politically literate, uh, that means that basically normally in an election, only half of the Senate comes up for election at a time and which half comes up for election alternates at each election uh, so that we don't have to vote for every senator. A double dissolution uh, can be called for by the prime minister. And basically that means that the whole Senate is up for election. And that's been done for various reasons throughout history. But Fraser saw an opportunity to really seize control of power because he saw that Labor was in a little bit of a a leadership crisis. Uh, He didn't know how popular Hawke was. Um, So he he saw the opportunity to even increase his lead in both the House of Representatives and in the Senate. So uh, as we mentioned, uh, Fraser's Fraser had been challenged by Peacock, who resigned from cabinet. At the same time, uh, once the election, the double dissolution election had been called, um, Labor also saw that they had a problem. And quite crucially, they got Hayden, who had been kicked out of the Labor leadership by Hawke, to resign as well. So Hawke was elected as the leader, unopposed. um, And Fraser called uh, a called the impend, uh, saw impending change, and he immediately called for an election. Um, it, now, it was a very interesting election indeed. As we've said, both parties going through a little bit of a uh, leadership crisis. And um, all of a sudden, 
everything started to fall apart for the Liberal and National parties in the lead up to this election. Fraser was unable to have uh, the Governor-General, Ninian Stephen, uh, officially accept his recommendation and dissolve Parliament before the announcement of change in Labor leadership. So all of a sudden, everyone knew that Labor had Bob Hawke as their leader. Fraser didn't want that to happen. Fraser wanted there to be just a little bit more instability for a little bit longer. Um, so all of a sudden, Labor started to gain a little bit of popularity. People liked Bob Hawke. He was, if if you remember um, Bob Hawke and uh, what he is remembered for, he is a very popular character among the people. Um, and there's a very famous quote from Hayden after resigning, saying that a drover's dog could lead Labor to victory in this election. Uh, rather insulting to Hawke, of course, but all of a sudden it started to fall apart for Fraser's campaign. Um, Fraser's campaign was using the slogan, we're not waiting for the world, while Hawke was campaign campaigning around bringing Australia together. Um, the Ash Wednesday bushfires would uh, devastate Victoria and South Australia, as we mentioned, that would really disrupt the re-election campaign of Fraser because he, uh, as the Prime Minister, put his campaign on hold to tour the affected areas. Then Fraser said something controversial that really stuffed up his chances. He uh, basically had a go at the banks. He said, to, he said uh, that ordinary people's money was safer under their beds than in a bank under labor, to which Hawke responded, you can't keep your money under the bed because that's where the commies are, of course, referring to all of the uh, paranoia surrounding the spread of communism throughout the 1970s and 1980s. As counting progressed on election night, all of a sudden, what had happened was, became it became clear, Labor won the election on one of the biggest swings in Australian electoral history and would gain one of the biggest majorities in Australian electoral history. Hawke uh, claimed victory. Fraser tearfully conceded defeat. They won on a 24-seat swing, the largest defeat of a sitting government since 1949 and the worst defeat of a sitting non-Labor government ever. Fraser would soon resign from Parliament as a result uh, and he, the leadership, as uh, we start to get closer and closer to days that uh, more and more of us will remember, would go to one John Howard uh, becoming the opposition leader against Bob Hawke. But in the end, uh, Labor held government with 75 seats in the lower house, while the coalition would form opposition with 33 seats going to Liberals and 17 to Nationals. In terms of the Gallagher Index, which is what uh, gives us an idea of how the, the actual electoral results went, because seats can be a little bit deceptive, Labor would win almost 50% of the popular vote, which is, it doesn't sound like much, but when you consider that there are actually a lot of parties, we don't just have liberal versus labor like we like that you would in, say, America, uh, where there is no other party that really gains a number of votes. We had, we, there are a lot of parties in Australia that will gain a decent enough percentage of the vote. So to gain nearly 50% of the vote for one party is quite incredible. Liberals would gain 34% of the vote. Nationals, just under 10%. Uh, the Democrat Party gained 5% of the vote and almost 2% of the vote would go to uh, various other parties. 
so forming one of the bi- the largest government advantages in history uh, and, of course, one of the biggest swings in an electoral win in history. Bob Hawke becoming the Prime Minister of Australia on the 5th of March, 1983. It was a rather incredible election campaign uh, with a lot of controversy and Malcolm Fraser probably uh, screwing himself over a little bit with some of his comments and some of the things that he tried to do to gain an advantage that didn't work out. Um, And in the end, all states except for Queensland would uh, nominate a Labour majority. You're listening to 106.9 Tune FM. That sums up 1983 here in Australia. Don't forget to join us at the same time next week. We're going to be talking about the year 1984. And hopefully we will have a guest on the show. Once again, it is a matter of just how busy the lecturers are. You are listening to Tune FM. And let's get back to the music.